Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Eric Lindblade, licensed battlefield guide here at Gettysburg National Military Park, and we are coming to you from the world-famous Reliance Mine Saloon in Gettysburg. I am joined today by my co-host, Jim Hessler. Jim, what's our topic today? Hi, Eric, and hello, everybody. Today, Eric, we've got a peach of an episode. Tonight is Gettysburg's Peach Orchard, Longstreet, Sickles, and the bloody fight for the commanding ground along the Emmitsburg Road. We're going to cover what I think is some of the most critical yet underappreciated combat during both July 2nd and July 3rd at the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, that title sounds kind of familiar, Jim. Where did you get that title from? Well, Eric, since you asked, that is the title of my most recent book, which I co-wrote with licensed battlefield guide Britt Eisenberg and was released in June of 2019, about a month or so ago. The book has been doing very well, but what we wanted to do when we wrote the book was really give the first full-length, detailed account of the fighting for the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road that we think the topic warrants. And thanks for asking, by the way. No problem. Had to give you a plug there. Well, I appreciate that. So before, though, we get into the topic, I think we're going to kind of go to our listener mailbag. And I think, Eric, you're going to just sort of talk a little bit about some of the feedback we've had on recent episodes. And uh, how's everything been going? What kind of feedback are we getting? We're getting really great feedback. We are over 400 fans on our Facebook page. If you're not yet a fan, you can find us at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast on Facebook. Just go into your search bar, type it in. You'll find us there. Please like us, get involved. We're having some really good interaction there on our page. Looking at the stats from our first couple episodes, we already have listeners in 16 different states. 16 out of 50. Really 16 out great. of 50. We're great. on our way. We're on our way. And we do have listeners in Canada. Canada. So I guess this is now an international podcast. Excellent, excellent. Well, I know at least two Gettysburg enthusiasts in Canada. I hope that both of them are listening and that they're encouraging more of their friends and family to join us. Hey, Eric, I had a question today from superfan Keith in the Hanover area. You know, Keith is a little bit of an older guy. He kind of said, what's a podcast and how do I find you guys? You know, I'm assuming anybody who is listening to us right now knows how to find us, but it might be good to kind of give everybody just a little bit of primer on, you know, where and when they can they can get a hold of us. There's any number of ways to find us. We are currently on nine different platforms that will release podcasts, and depending on your type of whether it's an Android or an iPhone, or if you're listening on, say, a streaming service like Spotify, the easiest thing to do is look at your podcast option, the app that you have on your phone, type in the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. You should find us there. And also, we do release our episode online, so you can actually listen to it from your computer if necessary. So you don't actually have to even have a mobile device to listen to us. So even though it's called a podcast, the idea is that you take it portably. You can listen to it pretty much anywhere. Interesting. Great, great. Now, I do want to mention to the listeners, Eric and I, as you probably know by now, are both Gettysburg licensed battlefield guides, and we share sort of the history component of this podcast. But I got to admit, Eric has been doing almost all of the behind the scenes work. He got the Facebook page up and running. He's the one who does all of the editing and mixing after each episode to make us sound brilliant. My only complaint is I want Eric to make me sound more like William Shatner. 
so we're still talking about that behind the scenes but i'd want to give eric a shout out he's really been doing all the technical stuff buddy i'm giving you two thumbs up hey thanks for that it's truly a labor of love we enjoy bringing this podcast to you to help share gettysburg and its history and in fact we actually had today our first super fan tour Uh, yeah i saw that how did that go interestingly enough it was a family from louisville kentucky super fans bill fran and virginia they were on their way to philadelphia they wanted to come to gettysburg looking around for information they discovered that there's a podcast in the battle of gettysburg it just happened to be our podcast they heard that we had a facebook page they reached out to us and i was able to give them a three-hour tour before we recorded today so wait a minute wait a minute so if you'll recall in episode one we talked about some of the challenges of getting more people and trying to get a newer audience introduced to the gettysburg story are you saying we actually did that and that led to a battlefield tour at gettysburg today conducted by you is that what you're saying i am absolutely 100 percent saying that so we are bringing new folks into the fold huzzah huzzah. this is exactly what we're looking to do this is what the podcast about and also it is a challenge to not just listen to us come to the battlefield experience this place and experience the history here i couldn't give the tour because i had a book signing today but tell me again what were the folks names it was our super fans bill fran and virginia from louisville kentucky well bill fran and virginia from louisville even though i didn't get a chance to meet you all today thank you and i hope you enjoyed your tour with eric i'm sure it was great so we are now going to move into the topic this week which is the peach orchard at gettysburg so jim first question why is the peach orchard important You know, Eric, I think when people think of the second day at Gettysburg, we have all been primarily preconditioned to focus first and foremost on Little Round Top, the Union defense, and ultimately the uh, unsuccessful Confederate attack on that landmark. But really, there was another piece of terrain on the battlefield that I think, that we think, was clearly more important, both from General Lee's point of view, and certainly became an inadvertent focal point in the Union defense, and that was Joseph Shurfee's Peach Orchard, a elevated piece of high ground along the Emmitsburg Road. Dan Sickles, this is today's Dan Sickles report. I think we could really say, Eric, that almost all of the episode today will be a proxy for this week's Dan Sickles report. Yeah, this is an extended edition of the weekly Dan Sickles report. And we should caution listeners in case there are any Dan Sickles haters out there. Probably not the last time that we will do an episode that's heavily focused on Dan, but you really can't, folks. He's that important to the Battle of Gettysburg. And if you don't think Sickles is important to the Battle of Gettysburg, keep listening to us, and over the coming weeks, we'll continue to try to educate you on that. So with the topic of the peach orchard on tours, we talk about the peach orchard, we talk about the Sherfy peach orchard sometimes, but what exactly is the peach orchard and who were the people that owned it in 1863? Yeah, that's a great point, Eric, because as you said, it's a name Sherfy that gets mentioned a lot, but we really don't give enough attention to the civilian aspect of this story. Joseph Sherfy was born in 1812 nearby in the Rose Farm. So for those of you, especially you think of the battle and the fighting in and around the wheat field, Sherfy was actually born in what was known at the time of the battle as the Rose property. He owned by 1863, Joseph Sherfy and his wife Mary owned about a 50-acre farm, which is fairly prosperous for that part of the battlefield. 
as I said, his wife's name was Mary. They had six children, three boys and three girls, ranging in age from adult to child. And they also shared the property, the house, with Mary's mother, which would be Joseph Sherfee's mother-in-law. Now, the Sherfees were essentially pacifists. Joseph Sherfee was a minister in the Dunkard Church. But one of the crown jewels of this 50-acre farm was their peach orchard. Today, Gettysburg National Military Park commemorates the peach orchard is sort of a four-acre plot of trees right at the intersection of the Emmitsburg and Wheatfield roads. But really, what Britt and I think in our book, at the time of the battle, we like to refer to it really as two peach orchards because there was also a six-acre orchard that stretched north of the Wheatfield Road through the John and Mary Wentz property and across from the um, Sherfy house. So when we talk about the battle at the peach orchard, we're really talking about 10 acres of peach trees. This whole area, as it sat along the Emmitsburg Road, was more or less open, broad, and flat. It's going to turn out to be good for troop maneuvers and good for artillery placement. It's interesting you mentioned Little Round Top. When people think of July 2nd, that's where their mind goes. I would argue that maybe outside of Cemetery Hill, this is the most important feature on the Gettysburg battlefield terrain-wise. You know, I think, Eric, we can definitely make that argument. Look, there's no doubt that Robert E. Lee's ultimate objective is to capture Cemetery Ridge and Cemetery Hill, both on July 2nd and July 3rd. But in order to do that, he's got to capture the Peach Orchard. Lee mentions that several times in his after-action reports on the Gettysburg campaign. He talks about that the Peach Orchard was a piece of elevated ground along the Emmitsburg Road that he wanted to grab with his artillery so that his artillery could be brought to bear with effect onto Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge beyond. So in Lee's mind, in order to capture Cemetery Hill, he's got to have the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road. So Jim, you mentioned Lee's report and Lee's plan on July 2nd. What does Lee say that he's trying to accomplish on that day? First of all, you have to remember that Lee files what could be considered a couple reports after the Battle of Gettysburg and summarizing the campaign. In Lee's first report, dated July 31st, First, he says specifically, and I quote, in front of General Longstreet, the enemy held a position from which, if he could be driven, it was thought our artillery could be used to advantage in assailing the more elevated ground beyond and thus enable us to reach the crest of the ridge. So by the end of July, that was how Lee was describing his objectives and how the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road Ridge played into that. Goes into a little bit more detail subsequently, though, in his January 1864 report, and I'm going to quote that again. Quote, it was determined to make the principal attack upon the enemy's left and endeavor to gain a position from which it was thought that our artillery could be brought to bear with effect. Longstreet was directed to place the divisions of McClaws and Hood on the right of A.P. Hill, partially enveloping the enemy's left, which he was to drive in. So folks, we can kind of glean a couple of things from that. First of all, we're trying to partially envelop the federal left, drive it in. We're trying to gain a position from which it was thought that the artillery could be brought to bear with effect. And we're trying to assault the more elevated ground beyond, which is Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge. Now, as we know, and Eric and I are going to go into this, a lot doesn't go according to Lee's plans, but that at least is on paper how Lee summarizes it afterwards. And you mentioned that things begin to go 
wrong. And as we look at this in hindsight, this goes wrong almost in the very beginning stages of July 2nd. More specifically, and probably most famously, with Captain Samuel Johnson's reconnaissance of the end of the Union line to the southern side of the battlefield early morning hours July 2nd. I don't think we're going to get too much into the weeds on it. Again, heck, Eric, maybe we do a whole another episode in the future on Johnston's reconnaissance. Man, we're just we're just stockpiling future episodes here, aren't we? We are. So, folks, if you think we're done after one season, have no fear. I, I think we've been renewed at least for season two at this point. But anyways, back to the topic at hand. There's a number of reconnaissances done that morning by Lee and his staff, but Johnston's is the most famous and best-known one to Gettysburg enthusiasts. We're not going to get into the debate today over where Johnston went or where he might have went, but the bottom line is Captain Johnston seems to tell Lee, and by extension Longstreet, that the federal left does not extend as far as the Round Tops. So far as what the Union line looked like that morning when Johnston did his reconnaissance, that's more or less accurate. But the problem is, is when Johnston comes back and tells Lee this fact, and then Lee sets Longstreet in motion throughout the infamous countermarch during the afternoon of July 2nd, by the time Longstreet gets into position opposite the Peach Orchard at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Johnston's reconnaissance at that point is very stale. And so the Confederates are relying on outdated information. The bottom line is this attack is going to begin with the Confederates really not understanding where the Union left is, what the shape of the Union position is, and really the whole strength of the Union left flank is more or less going to be a mystery to Longstreet when he starts to deploy his attack on the Peach Orchard in Emmitsburg Road. To me, as I look at the scholarship of the battle, and I think sometimes students of the battle get really so caught up in the weeds into where exactly Captain Johnston went that they really lose sight of what did he actually report to Lee, which to me is the most important part of all of this. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter where he went. It's what he's going to report to Lee in that morning that's going to have grave effects for the Confederate Army later in the day. Yeah, and I agree with you, Eric. And just to dovetail that, you know, there are some scholars who think that when Longstreet is ready to begin the attack on the Peach Orchard and the Union left flank, that Lee and Longstreet initially thought the Union left flank was in the low ground on Cemetery Ridge, about where the Pennsylvania Memorial is today. But I think their reports would more tend to indicate that as they were getting in a position, they thought, and again, folks, we know they were wrong, mistakes happen, but they thought that the Union left flank probably ran along the Emmitsburg Road and ended short of the Peach Orchard. This is mentioned in several accounts. Lafayette McClaws, one of Longstreet's division commanders, for example, says later that as they were starting to move into position or opposite Warfield and Seminary Ridge, that Longstreet says to McClaws, how are you going to go in? And McClaws says, that will depend on what's in my front. And Longstreet replies, nothing is in your front. You are entirely on the flank of the enemy. McClaws repeats this in a letter to his wife written several days later. Joseph Kershaw, a brigade commander, says essentially the same thing that he was told by Longstreet to pivot his left and more or less swing up the Emmitsburg Road, that when the Confederates are in position getting ready to make this attack, they seem to think that by deploying in and around the Peach Orchard, they can pivot up the Emmitsburg Road and somehow drive in the Union left flank. That's not what happens. That's not what the Union line looks like. And frankly, Eric, that plan is disrupted in large measure because Dan Sickles has moved his third corps forward to the Peach Orchard, to the Emmitsburg Road, and created what we know today is sort of the Sickles salient in front of Cemetery Ridge. So if nothing else has happened, Sickles does disrupt the initial Confederate plan of attack. 
And this disruption that Sickles causes really has a major impact on the division of John Bell Hood, who now Longstreet's going to shift further to the right, trying to find the end of the Union line, which we now know is at the Devil's Den area, but at this moment, they don't know that. So now we have Hood moving more to the right, and if you've ever driven through that part of the battlefield, it's also really rough terrain. Mm. It's rocky. It's marshy. It's wooded. So what we now see is this is going to cause some delays, some further issues with that Confederate attack moving forward. And you know, that's a great point, Eric. And you know, one point that Britt and I make in the Peach Orchard book, which I'm sure is something you can appreciate as a battlefield guide, so many people come here with the notion of Longstreet as the defensive general. Longstreet wants to fight on the defense. But if you look at Longstreet's career, one of the hallmarks of battlefields where he has had offensive success, and I think of second Manassas. I think of Chickamauga, which occurs obviously after the Battle of Gettysburg. But I think when you look at those things and you look for sort of common denominators, what you see is that Longstreet on both of those battlefields more or less was given a relatively ample amount of time to prepare and to stack his troops in depth. And he doesn't get that on July 2nd at Gettysburg because of this disruption and this modification that you just talked about. By swinging Hood further to the right, Longstreet's not going to be able to attack in depth, which is going to cause problems all along Sickles' extended front. But again, I just think in general, Longstreet doesn't have that time to prepare his modified plan of attack. And I think that's going to show in the general management of the attack once the Confederates step off. But we should point out, if we look at Lee's Corps commanders, if there is one that can pull this off, it's James Longstreet. He has the experience. He has done this before. He's actually led larger attacks Mm -hmm. than what he's going to do here. Now, we would argue that he's not led these attacks to the type of terrain that he is at Gettysburg. But this is Lee's best Corps commander in charge of this operation. Well, you know, this could dovetail into last week's very special What If Jackson Were at Gettysburg episode. I mean, look, certainly in terms of choosing between Longstreet or Hill, you've certainly got to go with Longstreet on this. As you said, he's experienced, he's tested. Hill has a whole other host of problems that no doubt we'll get to on our special AP Hill at Gettysburg episode. You know, I think Longstreet's the right guy for the job, but quite frankly, Longstreet is Lee's only viable option at Gettysburg to do something like this. So now the Confederates and James Longstreet are in position to attack, but we have Dan Sickles along the Emmitsburg Road in the Peach Orchard. What brings Sickles to that point of the battlefield? No, obviously Sickles is, as we said earlier, he's a guy that you cannot escape when discussing this topic. Sickles' decisions and his decision to move his third corps into the Peach Orchard, the Emmitsburg Road, this whole advanced position, impacts the action that we're talking about more than any other officer on the field. Uh, Eric and I decided ahead of time that we're not going to do a detailed Dan Sickles biography today. Uh, I think we're talking about maybe opening season two with something along those lines. So mark your calendars for that. There's a couple things you got to remember with Sickles. He is a man of some ability. And look, I've been working here at Gettysburg now as a battlefield guide for about 20 years. I was coming here for maybe 10 years before that. And especially going back a number of years, I felt like the the most standard interpretation I heard of Sickles' decision to move forward was, well, Sickles was an idiot. And that was one of the most common things you always sort of heard. Or you heard, well, he's a politician and he wanted to be president. 
internet and all sorts of crazy political theories. You know, and I know people want to make Sickles sort of the quintessential villain in the story. But if you step back a little bit, I think you've got to understand a couple things. First of all, I would characterize Dan Sickles as an emotional decision maker. And that's not psycho babble that we're trying to throw at you here. But I think Sickles' personal history kind of reveals a guy who's going to be very reactive in his decision making, go more from the gut. And if you know emotional people who sometimes tend to fly off the handle, they often don't look at the big picture. They kind of look more just along their front. And and I think a lot of Sickles' decision to move forward to the Peach Orchard is at least from his point of view going to start there. I think you make a good point about Sickles being a very emotional decision maker. And I would just want to add to that, when I view Sickles, I see an individual that is often very sensitive to personal slights or perceived personal slights. And I think in the confines of an army, there are things that are done that if you're not used to that environment, might come through as a slight to you or a personal shot against you. And I think we begin to see that at play on the morning of July 2nd, especially with Sickles' relationship with George Meade. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Eric. You know, again, some different ways to kind of look at this. Remember, prior to the Battle of Gettysburg, Sickles has been basically under the thumb of his friend and former Army Commander Joe Hooker. So Sickles, prior to Gettysburg, had been used to enjoying close relations with headquarters. He doesn't have that at Gettysburg. The differences between Meade and Sickles go beyond training. And again, this is where interpretation has almost always been, well, Meade the professional versus Sickles the bumbling amateur. And again, folks, I'm not saying that that's not part of it, but the relationship between these two guys is a little more nuanced than that. And what you really see when you go back is winter of 1862 into spring of 1863. Sickles and Meade were clearly moving within different cliques within the army. And frankly, the two guys just didn't like each other all that much. That's obvious. So the personal history between these two guys is also going to be a factor in terms of what's really going to be coming here on the morning of July 2nd, which I always characterize as a spectacular failure to communicate. I think the communication point is an excellent one. And one area where I often fault George Meade on July 2nd is the way he communicated with Sickles. By all accounts, Meade views Sickles as his weakest corps commander. If I would think of this as an organization, if you have a weak link, your job as the leader of that organization is to make sure that you try to limit the impact that that weak link can have. And Meade, I don't think, really does that as much. And I don't know if this is maybe that personal animosity coming to a head, whether it was conscious or subconscious. Also, Meade has a lot on his plate. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think that's something we have to look at, but I think Meade could have done a better job of communicating with Sickles and being a little more clear in what he has to say moving forward in the battle. Well, that's a provocative point, Eric. You know, we might get some feedback on that. You know, I think the other thing too, first of all, you touched on the fact that Meade has a lot on his plate. As we all know, as we should know, Meade is new to command. I also think the morning of July 2nd, Meade is probably a little bit more focused against potential action on his own right flank. As many people know, they'd consider some action in the Culp's Hill Cemetery Hill area, but that doesn't happen. What does happen is that early in the morning on July 2nd at Army headquarters, Meade assigns his son, Captain George Meade, who is on his father's staff. General Meade assigns Captain Meade to basically take a ride to Sickles' headquarters, which is only about, give or take, a mile and a quarter away, but take a ride to Sickles' headquarters and see if Sickles and the Third Corps are already posted in position. So clearly by 
by that point, it's Sickles has already received instructions on what he's supposed to be doing. But Captain Mead gets to Third Corps headquarters, and Sickles isn't out. Sickles is in his tent. He's sleeping late, Eric. He's sleeping in on the morning of July 2nd. Captain Mead talks to Artillery Chief of the Third Corps, Captain Randolph. I know, folks, there's a lot of captains here. Just stay with me. Talks to Captain Randolph, commander of the Third Corps Artillery. So Randolph goes into Sickles' tent, and Captain Mead is waiting. 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 And then finally Randolph comes out of the tent and says, well, General Sickles isn't in position and really isn't sure about where he's supposed to go. Well, Captain Meade at that point isn't really sure what he's supposed to do, so he goes back to see his father at headquarters. And this time his father sort of, I think, spells it out a little more directly. Now, the best description we have of what Meade's instructions to Sickles were comes from General Meade himself. And what General Meade later said was, quote, I had sent instructions in the morning to General Sickles, directing him to form his corps in line of battle on the left of Hancock's 2nd Corps. And I had indicated to him that his right was to rest upon General Hancock's left, and his left was to extend to the Round Top Mountain, plainly visible, if it was practicable to occupy it. Eric, didn't we do this in last week's episode about Ewell? There's those words again, if practicable to occupy it. Yes, and this is actually a common phrase that you'll see in the Civil War. It's not just a Robert E. Lee-ism. Exactly. Yeah, good point. And likewise, I have seen battlefield programs on the Gettysburg battlefield where people have said, no, Meade did not use the phrase, if practicable. Folks, that description I just read came to you from General Meade. Now remember, we're not trying to make excuses for General Sickles here. We're just as historians trying to sift through the, the mud in the fall in the weeds and and try to tell you, the listener, what happened. And a point I often make on tours when discussing Sickles is I say, I don't agree with what Sickles did, but I can kind of understand where he's coming from. And that doesn't mean we're excusing what he does. It doesn't mean we're giving Sickles a pass. It simply means that we're trying to get inside his head and understand why he makes the decisions he does. Right. Look, if you want want to treat your history like, no, he was an idiot and he wanted to be president, that's really shallow. That's really superficial. The real story is more complicated and frankly a lot more interesting than that so stay with us on this folks okay so now general meade sends his son back to third corps headquarters there's another component of the orders that we haven't really talked about but the night before there was an element of the 12th corps in and around the round tops and apparently sickles and the third corps are supposed to replace this element of the 12th corps some of geary's division geary's guys though by this point in the morning have already left and rejoined the rest of the 12th corps in and around Culp's Hill. so when captain meade comes back the second time sickles is already up and moving but also adds to the fact that I don't know where the 12th Corps was. They were just massed in my vicinity. If you want me to replace them, I'm not sure where I'm supposed to go. But with that, Sickles and his staff sort of ride off. Captain Meade has essentially delivered his orders, and he goes back to headquarters. And something I've often wondered is the presence of Captain George Meade there. If you're Dan Sickles... You already have a tense relationship with the mm-hmm. Army Commander, George Meade. Mm-hmm. And in Sickles' mind, he's sending his kid out to give me these orders. I'm not viewing him as a captain in the United States Army. I'm viewing him as George Meade's son 
for someone like Sickles, I've often felt that almost seems to be almost a little bit of a personal slap in the face. And are you almost thinking that maybe by sort of just being dismissive of Captain Meade that Sickles is thinking he could sort of kick his his nemesis General Meade in effigy sort of? Absolutely. Yeah. Here I am trying to figure this out and you send your punk kid out to give me the orders. <laughs> Come on, George Meade. Come on, man. Come on, Meade. I don't always like this cliche, but you'll see it a lot, that people will say that to understand the Battle of Gettysburg, you have to understand the Battle of Chancellorsville. And I think it sounds good. It makes people sound smart. (laughs) But every battle is unique. Every battle is different. Not to say that the past doesn't force decisions to be made one way or the other, but I think when it comes to this case... I think the ghosts of Chancellorsville are in the head of Dan Sickles that morning. Jim, what did Sickles think about Chancellorsville? Yeah, that's an interesting point, Eric. And there's two factors at play here when Sickles talks or is remembering Chancellorsville. First of all, the one that everybody always uses, and by everybody, I basically mean modern historians, the one that most modern historians and Gettysburg enthusiasts talk about is Hazel Grove. At Chancellorsville, Hazel Grove was essentially a salient position occupied by Sickles and the Third Corps on May 3rd. And what happened that morning was Hooker had wanted to retract his line he ordered the Third Corps out of the salient at Hazel Grove. Sickles obeyed orders, pulled his troops out, and after his troops were pulled out, Porter Alexander and Confederate artillery basically rolled their guns into Hazel Grove, which Alexander later described as a beautiful open plateau, perfect for artillery. And Alexander rolled the guns in and basically just unleashed hell on the Union position. So that's what happened at Hazel Grove. Many modern pundits think that Sickles is looking at the Peach Orchard as another Hazel Grove waiting to happen. And by moving his troops out to the Peach Orchard, many people think Sickles is going to grab the Peach Orchard and prevent the Confederates from getting another similar artillery position. So Hazel Grove, is Sickles trying to avoid the Hazel Grove repeat, is one of the most commonly asked questions and frankly one of the most commonly made assumptions about Sickles again. The interesting thing, though, is remember, folks, Dan Sickles lived for about 50 years after the Battle of Gettysburg. He talked about Chancellorsville a lot, but he never explicitly gave Hazel Grove as a reason for moving into the Peach Orchard. And one could argue that might have been Sickles' best argument for his actions on July 2nd. Because if we think about what Robert E. Lee is doing... Is he not thinking of using the Peach Orchard as an artillery platform Mm -hmm. to move attacks forward against the Union line? And you know, I often say that on tours. I often say, guess what, folks? Dumb old Dan Sickles actually does outguess Robert E. Lee and get to that Peach Orchard first. And here's a maybe unpopular opinion. Does Dan Sickles maybe have a better idea of the Confederate attack plan on July 2nd than George Meade? Just throwing a little heat here. That's all. Yeah, that's right. Pregnant. A pregnant pause here as we let the listeners ponder that one. Let me tell you what Sickles did say. Although he never specifically called out Hazel Grove, Sickles, Captain Randolph, and some of the other officers in the Third Corps, as the morning light developed on July 2nd, clearly did feel that the low ground on Cemetery Ridge north of Little Round Top, they did feel like that was a poor position for their artillery. Not only was their position in their fields of fire blocked by landmarks such as 
Elks Ridge and some of the intervening wood lines. But folks, if you've ever taken a walk on the Gettysburg Battlefield around the George Weikert property, uh, around Sedgwick Avenue today from the George Weikert property to Little Round Top, if you ever walk in that field, that field is deceptively rocky. So not only is it low ground and it's always been described as wet and marshy or that sort of thing, but when the National Park Service burns grass off in that field, there are a lot of, and I mean a lot of rocks and boulders in that field. So that low ground north of Little Round Top would not seem to be adequate for Sickles' artillery. And that's one of, I think, two things that are influencing his move forward that morning. And this is a key example, no pun intended, Sickles key. See what I did there? <laughs> that's another episode altogether. If we had a, if we had a gimmick, I'd like ring a bell right now or something. But we don't have gimmicks. We're no, the, we don't do gimmicks. We're the gimmick-free podcast. We are the gimmick-free podcast. But this is where I would urge you, in the area that I kind of call the Sickles Hole, if yeah. you will, where he is initially placed, just walk down there, even from your car. Look at what you can see. Your visibility is very limited there. You can't see a lot. And with Sickles really fixating on this ground in his front, he doesn't see the high ground he has to each side. Exactly, exactly right. And that gets back to what we said earlier about the type of decision maker he is. And I think that's well said, Eric. So he's blocked in his front. He's not looking at something like Little Round Top, which obviously is the highest defensible point in the vicinity, even though not a great artillery position, but obviously it would give him better observation than the low ground. So he's not thinking of that. He's looking to move forward. Back to Chancellorsville again. The other thing is when Sickles later on talked about the Chancellorsville effect, what seemed to shock him and probably shocked every other officer in the army was the after effects of Jackson's flank attack at Chancellorsville. And I think Given what happened to Oliver Howard at Chancellorsville, I think pretty much every Corps commander in the Army of the Potomac probably said, that ain't going to be me next time. And I think with Sickles being on the left flank, being psyched out about these blocked sight lines and the woodlots in front of him and the intervening ridges and being psyched out about what he thinks is not a good ground for his artillery, he's just looking for a better position. And as the morning develops, his eye catches on to the Emmitsburg Road, which by the way, the Third Corps arrived at Gettysburg via the Emmitsburg Road. So he had an opportunity to familiarize himself with the road, the high ground around the Peach Orchard the night before. Sickles is familiarizing himself with all of that. He decides as the morning progresses, that's going to be a better position than the one Meade has ordered him to take. Soon after this moment, Dan Sickles is going to head to Army headquarters. Jim, what happens at this point? Yeah, Eric, it's probably approaching about 11 o'clock that morning. Now again, there's probably other communications between staff officers like Henry Tremaine and Army Headquarters that morning. But I think the the most significant one is this 11 o'clock meeting. Sickles himself goes to uh, Meade's headquarters. And Meade, again, is obviously very busy. He's got a lot on his plate. But as the story essentially goes, Sickles asks Meade, will you come out and help examine my position for me? And Meade essentially says, no, I'm too busy. So from there, they ask for the assistance of Chief Engineer General Gouverneur. K. Warren. Warren is occupied with other duties. Finally, Artillery Chief Henry Hunt arrives at this meeting. Again, you know, Sickles says, hey, I could use some help posting my artillery. I could benefit from General Hunt's guidance. Hunt kind of says, sure, I got nothing going on. I'll come out with you. As they leave headquarters, Sickles and Hunt then essentially ride out towards the Peach Orchard. This is a bit of a surprise. Hunt realizes they're talking about positions for artillery, but I don't think he realizes there's one they were considering 
this far in advance of the main union line. So as they go out to the Peach Orchard, Sickles and Hunt kind of talk about the pros and the cons of the position. But west of Sickles' position at the Peach Orchard, across from the Emmitsburg Road, there is a woodlot, Pitzer's Woodlot, on the sort of the western side of Seminary or Warfield Ridge, which is of concern to General Hunt. And as Hunt leaves this meeting with Sickles. Sickles kind of says, you know, General Hunt, do I have your permission to move forward on Meade's authority? And Hunt says, no way, not on my authority. Before uh, you do anything, I would reconnoiter those woods because if the rebels are in the woods, you will not be able to hold the Emmitsburg Road in force. And to me, this is a critical moment in the Sickles-Meade controversy, if you will. Think about what Sickles has asked Meade. Will you come take a look at it? No, I won't. Can I have the chief engineer? No, you can't. He's busy. You're getting the artillery chief, Henry Hunt, who is a capable officer. But once again, think about Sickles being aware of those personal slights. Would Meade have dealt with Hancock that way? Would he have dealt with Sedgwick that way? Maybe, maybe not. But in Sickles' mind, I can see him feeling almost slightly victimized here. And this is going to have an impact on what's going to happen next with that reconnaissance that Henry Hunt suggests. Yeah, before we go there, great point, Eric. I'll just tell you that the naysayer in the audience right now is going to say, well, Hancock wouldn't have needed all of that attention. Folks, that may or may not be true. But the bottom line is Sickles did. Sickles asked for it, and he didn't get it. So, Eric, tell us a little more about the reconnaissance. What we're going to see at this point is that Sickles is going to order elements of the 1st United States Sharpshooters and the 3rd Maine from their position on the lower end of Cemetery Ridge across the Emmitsburg Road towards Pitzer's Woods. When they reach that vicinity, they are going to find the arrival of an Alabama brigade under the command of Cadmus Wilcox from Richard Anderson's division. A sharp skirmish is going to erupt in the woods, and now this reconnaissance party is going to report back to Dan Sickles with what they've discovered. Now Sickles knows there's enemy troops in his front. To what number? To what extent? That's a great question, but now he knows there's troops there. And in my opinion, in this moment is when Sickles makes his decision to move forward. Yeah, I agree, Eric. And and one additional thing has happened during that period, which we didn't touch on. John Buford's cavalry had also been scouting and patrolling opposite the Union left during the morning hours, and some of his troops and artillery were even bivouacked in and around the Peach Orchard. While that reconnaissance that you told us about was in progress, Buford received orders to withdraw. Now, the intent was for cavalry to come up and replace Buford, but it didn't happen. So while that firefight in Pitzer's Woods was going on, that you talked about. Buford's cavalry screen is withdrawn from the left flank, pulled out of the peach orchard, and it's just sort of one more thing that goes into Dan Sickles' head, saying, great, they're not paying attention to me at headquarters, and they're removing my cavalry. Now I've got this report that, you know, rebels are in the woods. I gotta act. I'm Dan Sickles. I gotta act. I gotta do something. And as we've often seen in Sickles' life, he's really the type of person that asks for forgiveness, then permission. Great point, yeah. But I do think all of this is a perfect storm in Sickles' head. Yeah. I have no one viewing out along the Emmitsburg Road for me. I'm in this low position. No one's listening to me at headquarters. And now I've got the enemy in my front. For Sickles, this is a no-brainer. And I would put the question out to our listeners. If this is an officer not named Dan Sickles, and we gave you this scenario, would we maybe look at this a little differently than we do today? Well, you know, that's a great point, and I know you've posed that to the listeners. And the example that I'll use is Francis Barlow 
on the first day at the Battle of Gettysburg. Again, different situation, but enough similarities. And one big difference, even though Gettysburg enthusiasts today ultimately view Barlow's move forward as a blunder, they don't hate him with the same enthusiasm that they hate Dan Sickles. So I think to your question, Eric, if you put another officer in this scenario, we might kind of scratch our heads and say, ah, bad call. But I don't think you would get the same venom and hatred that people have for Sickles. I've often joked, if you want to start a bar fight in Gettysburg, open the door to any bar in town and just yell, Sickles was right, close the door, let the chaos erupt. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. You know, there was a night here in this very Reliance Mine saloon where a guy at the bar told me that I should be hanged for court-martial. And, you know, where do you, like, even go with that? So the guy, first of all, thinks I'm Dan Sickles, and I had to kind of explain that to him. And then it's somehow, you know, I was guilty of court-martial and treason by, by moving forward to the peach orchard and that I should have been hanged for that. So you're right, man. I mean, that's the kind of uh, crowd we get here in town. At this point, as every student of the battle knows, Dan Sickles and his Union Third Corps are going to advance to this forward position along the Emmitsburg Road, back towards the Peach Orchard, and then towards the wheat field, and finally to a large collection of boulders called Devil's Den. As this happens, Confederates are going to begin to approach the vicinity of Warfield Ridge or Seminary Ridge, and very soon a very sharp artillery duel is going to start taking place in the vicinity around the Peach Orchard with Confederates along their new position. Yeah, Porter Alexander, who is essentially acting as Longstreet's artillery chief at the Battle of Gettysburg. Porter Alexander later called this the hottest, hardest, sharpest artillery afternoon of the entire war. And folks, this is a guy who had really served in varying capacities throughout the entire war. He had been at Antietam, the so-called artillery hell. He's going to play a big role in the cannonade before Pickett's charge on July 3rd. But Alexander said the artillery fighting in and around the Peach Orchard and Emmitsburg Road trumped all of those roughly about 3.30 in the afternoon until really 6 o'clock or beyond. Ultimately, both sides are going to bring in almost 100 pieces of artillery into this sector. Alexander's probably going to get about 47 Confederate cannon online, and their goal is to try to converge fire onto Sickles' line from two different directions so that they can basically soften up the Union position and ultimately drive out the Union defenders. However, Eric, the Union Union artillery managed by Henry Hunt and supported by subordinate officers is not going to be denied. And one of the things that they do is they're going to bring in as many as 56 guns into action at the Peach Orchard, along the Emmitsburg Road, along the Wheatfield Road. And folks, if you're an artillery enthusiast, it probably doesn't get any better as these two sides now are just blasting away at each other at ranges at some point of only a couple hundred yards. And that is what's most remarkable about this action is the range that these guns are apart from each other. This is incredibly close quarters artillery action. And as I look at this, once again, this is another example from the Battle of Gettysburg, where the Union artillerists, to a man, outperform their Confederate counterparts, yeah, even they though they're do. outgunned. Yeah. Think about July 1st, a very similar situation where Confederates have more guns, 
better positions, but the Union artillerists hold fast and really give as good as they got. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, and Eric, you talked about the close range. One of the stories that tell on battlefield tours that often surprises people, one of the batteries in the Peach Orchard under Captain Nelson Ames at one point reports that he's taking canister fire from his Confederate counterparts. And think about that, folks. Can you think of any other instance in the Battle of Gettysburg where opposing sides are throwing canister fire at each other. So the fact that Ames's battery along the Peach Orchard and Emmitsburg Road is taking canister fire from the Confederates at one point speaks to the relatively close distances of these two sides. It's around this time as the artillery duel is really beginning to pick up, both George Meade and Dan Sickles reach the vicinity of the Peach Orchard, which means we need to kind of backtrack a little bit. How and when did George Meade first find out that Sickles is now taking up this forward position? Yeah, backing up a little bit. So at about three o'clock in the afternoon, really as Hood's division was moving into position on Warfield Ridge, Sickles was on the ground supervising some artillery fire from Judson Clark's New Jersey battery, and they could see Confederate movements opposite them on Seminary and Warfield Ridge. Again, they could see Hood's division moving into position. It was at that time that Sickles was summoned to Army headquarters as Meade wanted to have a meeting of his corps commanders. While Sickles was going to headquarters, Governor Warren, the chief engineer, had also sent somebody up to Little Round Top to sort of investigate these reports of the Third Corps not being in position. Warren and his staff confirmed that nobody was on that high point and that the Third Corps was, in fact, not where Meade expected them to be. So you sort of have Warren and Sickles more or less coming to Meade's headquarters at about the same time. Warren tells Meade, we got a problem. Sickles arrives. Meade says to Sickles, don't even get off your horse. I'm going to follow you out there. And so, Eric, it's really probably about 3.30 or so in the afternoon when really for the first time that day, Meade gets a glimpse of what's going on at the Peach Orchard. To me, this is a fascinating moment in the battle because we now have Sickles and George Meade in the vicinity of the Peach Orchard. Sickles has gotten his wish. Meade is out here. As all hell is breaking loose with the artillery, Sickles is pleased leading his case to the army commander about what's going on. And now George Meade really has one of the biggest crises of his command at this point. What is Meade going to do next? Yeah, that's exactly right, Eric. And as the two of them are going back and forth, as you can imagine, accounts written and said later sort of varied. But what seems to happen is Sickles essentially apologizes at one point and says to General Meade, you know what, if you want me back there and this doesn't meet with your approval, I will move back. But the problem is, is that the Confederate artillery is going off at that point. Troops are moving into position and Meade can clearly see that those people will not let you pull back. So Meade, has got to make, as you said, one of the critical decisions, perhaps the critical decision of the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Meade decides not to pull his Third Corps back, but he is instead going to draw on reinforcements from other parts of the field to plug holes on the left flank that has been created by Sickles. And that's going to include putting troops on Little Round Top. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but as Meade and Sickles are here, Meade really identifies the area around the Peach Orchard as what he calls neutral ground. Yeah. The idea that neither army can really hold this position to an advantage. So it's sort of a no man's land, for lack of a better term. No one can hold it to an advantage. Into this no man's land, 
George Meade is now going to commit at this point what was his army's reserve, the Union Fifth Corps, to try to help plug this gap that Sickles has opened up, also to kind of back up Sickles' men as best he can. The Sixth Corps is just getting into the vicinity of Gettysburg, so we do have some troops moving in, but this is a bit of a risk for George Meade. As an army commander, you do not want to commit your army's reserve unless you absolutely have to. Yeah, and interestingly enough, General George Sykes, commander of the 5th Corps, as his troops are being rushed into position, Sykes is going to be told, you are not to accept any orders from General Sickles or the 3rd Corps. So Meade has got a very definitive idea in mind in terms of where Sykes is going to go. Again, elements of the 5th Corps will end up at Little Round Top. They'll end up in and around the wheat field. And we should add, too, that at one point, Meade considers pulling one of Sickles' divisions divisions, the second division under Andrew Humphreys, Meade considers pulling them off the Emmitsburg Road and also sending them towards Little Round Top. But the Fifth Corps gets there first, and Humphreys is going to stay along the Emmitsburg Road and participate in this fighting. So a little bit of foreshadowing of some of the more famous moments we will see on July 2nd. So as we're looking at this episode, we've covered a lot of ground up to this point. And to be honest, we've just gotten to the opening stages of what becomes the Peach Orchard Fights. So I may be thinking, should we turn this into a two-parter? Eric, I think we got so much stuff to cover here. I think it's got to be a two-parter. So I say we do it. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. What this will be, this will be the Peach Orchard Part 1. We will come back to you next week with what's the Peach Orchard Part 2. So as we start wrapping up part one of the Peach Orchard, just a reminder that Eric and I are both Gettysburg licensed battlefield guides and are available for battlefield tours. Just remember, no matter the season, complete your Gettysburg experience with a personalized battlefield tour from a licensed battlefield guide. We remain the only federally licensed guides offering tours of Gettysburg National Military Park for over 100 years. Tours are available daily, seven days a week 12 months out of the year eric if somebody's coming to gettysburg you know we had a listener today who took a tour but if somebody were coming to gettysburg how would they get a tour where can they find us there's a couple ways if you are coming in advance uh, you can call the association of licensed battlefield guides at our office at area code 717-337-1709 if you're kind of just rolling in without a plan you can find guides on a first come first serve basis at the Gettysburg National Military Park Visitor Center, located at 1195 Baltimore Pike. You can also find them in town at the Gettysburg Heritage Center at 297 Steinware Avenue. Keep in mind, though, that is on a first-come, first-served basis, so we would highly recommend if you're coming to town, try to book your guide in advance. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Don't come into town without a plan, folks. Make your plans ahead of time. Get a battlefield guide. Get a tour of the battlefield. It is without a doubt the best way to do it. There's all kinds of ways you can tour the battlefield, but I think the car tour, the personalized car tour with the battlefield guide, I think that's the best way to do it. So other than daily tours, Eric, do the battlefield guides have any special events coming up? We do. We do have the annual Association Licensed Battlefield Guide Fall Seminar the topic is gone but not forgotten uses of the battlefield sort of outside of the battle world war one camps world war ii camps barrel sites a really interesting look at some of the more 
underappreciated uses of the battlefield. And that seminar will take place November 8th and 9th. Uh, for information, go to the Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides website. You can find all the information there. I am one of the presenters, but don't come just because of me. There's a great lineup and hope to see you there. Sounds great. So in closing here, don't forget to check us out on social media, Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. We're closing once again from the Reliance Mind Saloon. You're going to want to check in with us next time as we do the Peach Orchard Part 2. All right, folks. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.